IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we offer our predictions for 2024. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He spent the holiday break keeping track of all the bad discourse online. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, there was a real NFL Week 18 non-college football playoff bowl energy to the last couple of weeks between Christmas and New Year's. Like, all the major players are sitting out. Discourse at this time of year is just for, like, the sickos only. It's for the people who are, like, actually going to watch the Ravens when Lamar Jackson sits. Um, I, 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 think, <laughs> right. I think you're underselling just how bad the discourse really was over the past couple of weeks. And I'm almost excited to like hash that stuff out, hash that stuff out rather than like, I don't know, be hopeful about the year ahead. Well, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do a lightning round here in a minute of, uh, topics that came up while we were gone, uh, in, uh, the online world. Uh, yeah, a lot of anger. Yes. Happening, and you really realize that um, you know people—they're trapped with their families, and they're using social media as like a pressure valve, you know. And it's like I can't deal with the dysfunction of my family life, you know. There, there are unspoken things with my dad that I don't want to address, or my mother. She's criticizing me. I don't know what to say. So I'm going to go online, and I'm going to unload about the Smiths yeah. <laughs> or shoegaze music or whatever. So, yeah, we, we're going to get into that here in a minute. Uh, but uh, I'm just wondering, you know, because we have not recorded an episode for three weeks. Like, we, uh, we only missed one week mm-hmm. of episodes. We didn't post anything last week, but we banked a bunch of stuff in mid-December. So I haven't, like, we've DM'd, but yeah. we have not spoken for the better part of a month. How are you? Like, how was your holiday? Like, what? Like, anything notable happened? Well, you, you you gave me a little bit of shit for not consulting you about the uh, pa- the Packers wide receiver room. Um, but you know, I think the biggest thing that happened to me, as anyone saw who follows me online, is that um, yeah, I won my fantasy football league. We're gonna go sportscast. We're gonna like talk about the most boring shit imaginable. Uh, j- fantasy sportscast. Yeah. This is like even beyond sportscast. <laughs> now we're talking about fantasy sports cast and yeah you have a bunch of packers on your fantasy yeah. team and you were trying to figure out whether to start romeo dobbs or uh jaden yeah, reed. reed won and jaden reed won me 1500 bucks so i'm like the biggest packers fan on this podcast for like you know the next 20 years and, and for the record if you had consulted me <laughs> rather than doing the cattle call online and because again i'm a packer <laughs> fan you could have just reached out to me directly but whatever uh i would have said jaden yeah. reed because he is uh he uh is the best rookie receiver. It's the best rookie receiver year in Packer history. I think since Sterling Sharp. I think I saw that online. Sterling Sharp, Packer great. Antonio Freeman, uh, brother of Don Beebe, sh- brother Shannon. Yeah, let's let's yeah. remember some Packers wide receivers. Sterling Sharp though is probably the best because the Packers are known for having system receivers. <laughs> you know, you get like Jordy oh, Nelson God. in there, and he ends up being good because he's got Aaron Rodgers throwing to him. But, uh, you know, Sterling Sharp is, like, one of the sort of genuinely great receivers that they've had. Um, Jaden Reed looks like he's coming to that place. How much did you 15, win in your fantasy? 
Jesus yeah, know, Christ, right? that's a lot. I know. Yeah, that's uh, maybe. May, yeah, I mean, just just imagine how far that money can stretch. Of course, like a good chunk of that was spent like paying off all the other uh, leagues that I've been in. But no, nah, that it's 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 so far. It's how many leagues are you in? I'm in three. One is like, Jeez. yeah, one is with um, my friends in San Diego. One is um, one is with my brother's friends at Penn State, and others with largely a bunch of previous pitchfork writers. I did not do as well. Uh, in that one, Texans is the reason finished like sixth in that league. What about you? Are you in any? I used to be, and then I quit because I just felt like it was too distracting. <laughs> you know, like I didn't want to uh, have my allegiances divided based on who was on my fantasy team. I also often forgot to update my <laughs> lineup every week. I was that guy that everyone hates in the league. So I bailed on fantasy sports. At least five years ago, so I don't do that anymore. I don't gamble either. I, I just I just watch the games. I am a pure sicko sports fan. Yeah, <laughs> just a guy. I've got nothing personally invested, no money or anything. I just watch the games. Um, pivoting from fantasy sports cast here to go into movie cast. I know you saw the holdovers. Great movie. I saw the holdovers too. Or I should say, I saw the holdovers as well. There's not a holdovers too yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> uh, hopefully, there will be. We'll see what what happens to Giamatti after he. Uh, uh, no after spoilers. The no spoilers. This film. I know. I almost said something. <laughs> I'll just say after the events of this film. Yes. Um, you know, I was talking about this movie with a friend of mine, and I was speculating on the leverage that Paul Giamatti had while he was negotiating his contract for this film because. You got an Alexander Payne movie about a curmudgeon <laughs> with a sensitive side. Who else are you going to cast <laughs> other than Paul Giamatti? Like who like who even is close to that lane right now? I, I mean this movie even by Giamatti standards, he is Giamattiing the hell out of this movie. And I'm saying this as a compliment. I think he's great. He's getting Oscar buzz for this performance. He's going to be my sentimental favorite. Uh, as we enter award season. Uh, but I just feel like there's no way you could have made this movie without Giamatti. Like, no. is there a poor man's Giamatti right now? Like, who would be the poor man's Giamatti? I was actually trying to, like, look up, like, looks like Giamatti or poor man's Giamatti. And the only thing that came up is this Screen Rant article where it says, Jim Carrey mistaken for Paul Giamatti and hilarious Google search glitch. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, basically the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe... Philip Seymour Hoffman, if he were uh, still with yeah. us, he wouldn't be a poor man's Giamatti. He'd be something else. But I feel like there's, uh, it's, it's a little bit different vibe with with Hoffman. He's more intense. Like yeah. Giamatti is like, uh, he does phone commercials. Like you gotta kind of have that like going for you. Uh, you know, yeah, he, I don't think Philip Seymour Hoffman would ever do that, even if he did make it to 2024. Yeah, he's got that intense theater guy energy. Giamatti is more of like. He's like the human form of like a resigned sigh. Like if you were looking for the human form of someone who's just kind of slumped in their chair and breathing heavily, like that would be Paul Giamatti. That's his energy. And uh, he's just peak Giamatti in this movie. It's like, it, I feel like it's going to be his defining role. It used to be sideways. Maybe you could say if Billions. you're a Billions fan, <laughs> Chuck Rhodes. But I don't know. I I loved the holdovers. I uh, 
I don't feel like I've seen enough movies to say it's my favorite of the year, but it's definitely my favorite of the movies I've seen. Either that or like Oppenheimer. I loved Oppenheimer. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We're, are we endorsing the holdovers here on IndieCast? Absolutely. And also, I can't believe you didn't mention Paul Giamatti's role as Jerry Heller in Straight Outta Compton. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> That's another yeah. one. Yeah. Definitely not a curmudgeonly type dude. Jerry Heller has a very different energy than uh, the guy in uh, Holdovers or Billions. But nonetheless, Paul Giamatti, I think Paul Giamatti would listen to IndieCast. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe he's listening right now and feeling he's he's like softly chuckling to himself in <laughs> yeah. like a melancholy kind of way, listening to the show while smoking a pipe and tweed jacket. Yeah, tweed jacket in a room by himself, but he's okay being by himself. He 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 feels content in uh, his own skin. Um, before we get into the lightning round of terrible discourse, I feel like we have to do a little in memoriam segment here for. Best Buy uh, selling physical media. Like this was reported this week. Best Buy, I'm kind of shocked that they were still selling CDs and DVDs and Blu-rays, but they officially announced that they are no longer selling physical media. And I feel like you and I have to at least briefly make note of this because you and I, we're part of the generation that went to Best Buy in the early aughts during that sort of post-strokes era where major labels were signing guitar bands and it's like we're gonna we're gonna launch the career of this guitar band by marketing a budget price CD at Best Buy. $7.99. You can get The Strangest Things by Long Wave. You can get Logic Will Break Your Heart by the Stills. Uh, I thought immediately of buying Day I Forgot by Pete Yorn <laughs> at Best Buy. Basically, like any 2003 CD, I just immediately associate with Best Buy. I don't know if you have any Best Buy memories that oh, you want to share. Absolutely. I mean, I think the ultimate um, is D. Laos and the Comatorium by Mars Volta. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah, that, the Coral self-titled album from 2003, <laughs> and also the Vines highly evolved. Like, those are... Oh, yeah. That, that, those are like the Sgt. Peppers and, uh, you know, the pet sounds of Best Buy Core. And I, I recall them being six ninety nine. dollars I'll never forget getting the uh, Best Buy Circular in the mail. I still live with my folks at that time. And just, like, mowing the lawn listening to, um, you know, like the first song of Mars Volta's D. Last in the Comatorium and trying to convince myself I actually like this. Um, yeah, just a real exciting time for lost leaders uh, in the music industry. Yeah, it, shout I, out I, to uh, Kaiser Chiefs. Oh, I God, like yeah, I predict a riot. That's on fucking Wish, man. <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember the rest of that album at all, but I remember <laughs> I predict a riot. I think they had some and, stupid-ass hats on, or maybe I'm confusing them with Maximo Park. Yeah, my, my, my memory of the video is of the lead singer leaping up in the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty. That was about to say, like, the one thing I remember is that he jumped a lot. Yeah, that was that was his thing. Uh yeah, uh, you know, would uh, like future heads would they be in this camp? Uh they were. I don't think they were quite on that. Like, I didn't see them at Best Buy. First off, that record fucking rules. The first Future Heads album, uh, best Kate Bush cover I've probably ever heard. Um, yeah, I, I think that they're a little too edgy. But like, Maximo Park was also too edgy. Kaiser Chiefs, the Coral, like that's the stuff that really hits that end cap 
right there. It had to be on like a major label, not like V2 or like, um, I don't know, something, some of those other quasi uh, major labels that were around back then. What about Hot Hot Heat? Make up the breakdown. I feel oh, like that would... Oh, yeah, but that's Sub Pop. That's technically... No, their album Elevator, that's the one that would be oh, the best okay. guy. Right, okay. Because <laughs> Sub Pop, I mean, they were blowing up at this time, though. I mean, this is the beginning of, you know, like, we've got the Postal Service. I guess Shoots Band of Horses. Narrow, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Shins. But, yeah, Band of Horses is a little more further down the road, I guess. But, uh, yeah, man, Best Buy, you know? Look... I haven't bought a CD there in a very long time, but uh, many happy memories mm-hmm. of Best Buy in the aughts. So, uh, in memoriam, the CD and DVD section. Yeah, bust, like bump Get Free as loud as humanly possible <laughs> the moment you get done with our podcast today. Uh, you know, get uh, get born by the Jets. By the, by the Jets. <laughs> by Jet. By Jet. Get born. Are you going to be my girl? Um Yes, Best Buy Rock. Uh, Okay, let's get to the terrible discourse lightning round. Now, like I said earlier, Ian and I, we haven't recorded for three weeks. So we missed a lot of discourse going on online, but we're observing it the whole time. There were certain topics that came up, uh, and I just couldn't wait to get (laughs) back to the show. There were so many trends waiting to be hashed, and I feel like some of these trends are a little uh, cold at this point, but it's okay this is a cold time of the year. We need stuff to talk about. So let's do a lightning round here. Uh, topic number one, uh, shoegaze was a big topic over the break. Um, I suppose this is related to the Eli Ennis story that was published by Stereo Gum right before Christmas. Uh, Eli is a great journalist. He's a co-host of the other indie rock podcast out there, uh, which are we allowed to say their name? Do we want to acknowledge them officially? Yeah, twenty twenty in twenty twenty four we're showing more love. So um, yeah, endless scroll. Okay. Yeah, especially the episodes just, where I'm on it. Yeah, just say we're just gonna say the name once though. We're yes. not gonna say it more than that. After that, you have to start paying us to mention your show. But yeah, the other indie rock podcast, Eli's a co-host of it. He wrote this great piece, really diving deep into uh, the modern shoegaze scene and like how it's being shaped by TikTok, and you have all these younger people getting into bands from the 90s and the aughts uh, through TikTok, and we've talked about Duster already on the show, Duster being this band that in the 90s wasn't really that popular, was considered maybe like a B or C level shoegaze band, and they've really blown up, uh, you know, like 20 years later, younger people have really elevated them as being the shoegaze band, like more popular than My Bloody Valentine or Slow Dive or Ride or the bands that really define the genre in the 90s. And correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, I I didn't pay super close attention to the uh, debate going on about shoegaze, but it seemed like the core issue was that there are older people who are upset that bands that weren't even considered shoegaze back in the day have now been sort of lumped under this umbrella to the point now where it seems like shoegaze is almost like a catch-all term for old alternative music. You know, like if you're a guitar band from a certain era, you're going to be labeled shoegaze. And that seems to be a point of contention 
with the 48-year-old indie <laughs> rock fans out there. Am I, am I classifying this correctly? I mean, is that, or am I missing something with that? Well, I think the fact that you first and foremost describe Duster as a shoegaze band gets to the core of it. I mean, they were considered a slowcore band, but right. slow, yeah, slowcore and shoegaze are kind of in this catch-all of guitar music that's like vaguely 90s scented. And I think Eli made a great point um, in the piece where TikTok shoegaze or whatever variation of it is like there's slowcore in there, but there's also like deftones and maybe some of it sounds like hum or third eye blind. It's it's in the same way that like emo became a catch all for stuff that sounded like pop punk. Um, And yeah, I mean, I get it in that, you know, I, I get in that like people like to gatekeep and be you know very nerdy about like subgenres, but I mean this this is pretty similar to the conversations I've seen about like we got like when Machine Gun Kelly became pop punk, how like people were out there trying to defend the integrity of the genre. I totally understand that with like you know certain forms of punk music and hip hop where these speak to like legitimate subcultures with some kind of socio-political valence to it. But I mean, shoegaze is like a message board in 2023. I mean, I I don't quite understand like what the problem is if we're not like honoring, like whatever the four elements of shoe is it four elements of hip hop or five. I can't remember. Uh, B-boying is definitely an element of shoegaze though. We cannot deny that. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah. It is now. The kids have made it an element now. You can't stop them. They're just putting everything into it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing with shoegaze, we've talked about this in relation to Duster, is that I do find it fascinating how younger generations rewrite music history and how that can be really strange once you reach an age where you have more perspective and you see your own musical past being rewritten by people who weren't even born at the time. And it makes me think about how you sometimes see older people get really upset that like Steely Dan has caught on with younger people Mm -hmm. because these, this older music fan was like, I loved the sex pistols in the seventies and Steely Dan was lame. So for you to say that Asia is better than (laughs) nevermind the Bullocks is crazy to me. You know, that's something that, people my age have done to you know boomers essentially and now we're seeing it with i guess gen z and millennials and gen xers like now we're having our musical past rewritten and it's very upsetting and it's also something you cannot stop like this is something that's going to happen and i think it's again it's just generally true that as you get further away from a decade that the distinctions between bands that were at one point important, it just gets blurred and everything gets put into the same bucket. It's the same reason why you listen to classic rock radio and like the chili peppers are being played on the same station as like Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if you're of a certain age, that stuff is basically the same. Even though if you came up, when those things were new, you would say, well, they're nothing alike. Why would you put them in the same bucket? Uh, so I know I'm just always fascinated by how these things evolve. Yeah. People are mad about shoegaze, but I think in reality, they're mad about TikTok just kind of destroying this time space continuum where you know, not like it used to be, there was a pretty linear narrative of each year, but now like bands from 2013 can blow up 10 years later. And, 
By the way, I, when you said Asia, I thought you were talking about the Heat of the Moment band, which, I don't know, they've had some jams too, perhaps more so than uh, Sex Pistols, if we're being real. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that, that we might have to add that take to the lightning round here at the end. Um, let's get to our next uh, bad discourse topic. And I don't know how this came up, but I saw a lot of people, for whatever reason, arguing about the Smiths. And there was this meme basically saying the Smiths suck. And I don't know how this came up. I don't know if like people watched The Killer on Netflix. You know, they finally caught up with the new Fincher movie. And, you know, there's a lot of Smith songs in that in that film i don't know if that provoked it or if there was just some like random 21 year old out there who decided to tweet about this and now we have another generation of 21 year olds who are arguing about the smiths and whether they're any good um i think you and i are on the same page on this like you uh, you like the smiths right yeah, I, I like the Smiths, and I, I, I'm not going to, like, you know, stump for them unless I see, like, some bad discourse because, I mean, when you're saying, like, yo, the Smiths suck, um, I mean, what does that even mean? Because for the most part, people who get into the Smiths do in high school, you know, they're like a real formative band where you can realize, oh, I can be clever and miserable at the same time. <laughs> I've never considered something like this before. Like, and also I feel like, in, this isn't new information that Morrissey's an asshole. I feel like people have done a pretty good job of separating the art from the artist for like the past 30 years in a way that like I don't think people have done with, say, like Marquis Smith in the fall. I just don't quite understand like who this is directed towards. And to the point where it's like, I mean, I don't know if this is as true anymore. Like, I mean, I live in Southern California and like Morrissey and the Smiths are just such a... An, a a, such an enormous part of the culture down here. Like, I wonder if saying the Smiths suck is like kind of bordering on like problematic in its own way. Like, no, Morrissey's problematic, but is like saying the Smiths suck also like kind of weird. Well, just because of the big like Mexican following that he has, like in in that part of the country, is that yeah, what you mean? A- absolutely. Because you know, like I think that where people saying like, yeah, Morrissey's got some bad views. Um, I don't think that takes away from like the music they made before. It's like, I'm not going to say like, yeah, fuck Astral Weeks because, you know, Van Morrison spent the past five years making anti-vax songs. I think it's possible to like understand the importance of the Smiths without like saying, oh, they always sucked. I think that's, I think the weirdest take is that uh, one I've seen about like how, Oh, it's really Johnny Marr and the rhythm section. Like, that was really what was going on with the Smiths. As if you could, like, somehow erase Morrissey from the Smiths. Like it, That's like saying, you know, to take away, like, Robert Smith from The Cure. Like, Morrissey is the thing. You know, the guys were supporting players, but yeah. Right. Like, Johnny Marr wrote great music, but, like, Morrissey... In his overwhelming Morrissey-ness, like yeah. they, like that is the defining characteristic of the Smiths. I mean, your Van Morrison comparison, I think, is apt because I think of Morrissey and Van Morrison both just being classic grumpy people, <laughs> and they just direct their grumpiness at different topics as the years unfold, which in a way makes it easier for me to dismiss anything that they say because it's like, oh, Van Morrison is is uh, upset about. Uh, COVID shutdowns. Well, yeah, of course he's upset about that. He was upset about Bruce Springsteen and supposedly ripping him off in the 70s. And then he was upset that people, you know, didn't give him his proper respect here and yada, yada, yada. He's like perpetually upset. So the specifics of what he's upset about just always seems 
less relevant to me. Um, Van Morrison's very upset that Best Buy is stopping selling CDs. I bet. I bet. You could, you know, buy hymns to the silence back then and uh, <laughs> a cassette at a good price. Um, it is interesting, you know, to kind of uh, piggyback on the uh, conversation about shoegaze that the uh, the standing of the Smiths has really taken a fall in the last 20 years. Like, this is another instance of, like, music history being rewritten a bit. Because I remember, you know, like, early aughts, like, when, when uh, like, Spin Magazine or even Pitchfork would do, like, the best albums of, like, the last 25 years, The Queen is Dead was, like, always in the top 10. Like, mm-hmm. that was considered, like, a canonical record. And I think it still is. But I feel like they've really taken a tumble while the cure have 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 uh, ascended uh, i mean there was a period of time where the cure was looked at as like this sort of embarrassing like juvenile type band and the smiths like were the more serious 80s you know indie pop band and it's just been interesting to see that get flip-flopped and you know i think rightly so to a degree at least in terms of the cure i mean i think the cure obviously is a great band we've talked about that on the show but uh, that's another instance of just seeing how these things evolve over time. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, maybe the Smiths, I don't know if there's ever going to be a chance for them to get a bump. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I, you would, I would think the killers, uh, I, I think the killer of the movie would have been that. But Right, exactly. And that movie didn't really do anything. Yeah, I think the killer would have been it. But also we have to consider the fact that like Robert Smith spent the past 30 years being like, a publicly good guy and Morrissey's done the opposite. It's been a real goofus and gallant thing. Yeah. Let's get to our next point here. And this is maybe my favorite uh, <laughs> terrible discourse that emerged in the last couple of weeks. And that is, has Green Day gone woke? Uh, this is something that came out this week because Green Day, they were on Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. Which we all saw. Which we all watched. <laughs> and they played American Idiot. And I think they played Holiday. Uh, presumably because it's the 20th anniversary of American Idiot. I know Green Day has a new album coming out later this month, and I assume we're going to be talking about that. Uh, but they didn't play new stuff, at least from what I've seen. They But they played American Idiot, and uh, Billy Joe Armstrong, he included a reference to the mega agenda. Like, I think he said something like, we're not going to go with the mega agenda. Yeah, he replaced and, uh, uh, Redneck with MAGA. With MAGA. So this is the type of thing where in a vacuum, like if we had just heard about this sans any other context, I probably would have made fun of Green Day for including a MAGA reference while playing on New Year's Rockin' Eve. Just because it seems like the kind of thing that like Green Day would do to appeal to the middle-aged punk fan out there who's also just like mainlining msnbc all day long you know just obsessing about donald trump and they're gonna hear green day do this and they're gonna be like yeah right on man (laughs) sticking it to the man punk still matters however what happened is is that of course right-wing people got upset about this for whatever reason and they went on the whole old thing about like why are you inserting politics into punk rock and my favorite which is it's actually more punk to be a trump fan uh which you see that coming up as well so 
I don't know. This this story, it just has all the elements of things that I hate slash love revolving around middle-aged punk people arguing about what's really punk. Like, that conversation, like the Smiths, you know, uh, it's just like a deathless conversation. You know someone in the world is always having this argument, probably on Facebook, uh, you know, going on. So, I don't know. Do you have, do you have an opinion? Like, are you, are you upset that Green Day has injected politics into punk rock? Well, yeah, because look where American Idiot got us last time, you know? Like, people were talking about, like, oh, yeah, they really... They really like toppled whatever hegemony was happening in 2004. It's like, no, I remember 2004 very distinctly. That was a very shitty time for political uh, punk or indie music. I mean, look, I love me some bright eyes, but when the president talks to guys, a fucking terrible song. Um, and I think even Connor Oberst would admit that. But yeah, this is this was I, I I'm like almost I'm like almost ready to say that this thing is actually like an astroturfed uh, controversy by Green Day's PR team because their last couple albums have been like super duper memory hold i only remember about the last one they had that billboard where it said like no swedish djs no edm drops and i mean i think that green day is just really embodying that 45 year old or 48 year old or even older like punk guy who still maybe listens to like anti-flag or something <laughs> like that um right or or maybe they just want to remind people of the fact they made american idiot so I don't know. I, I mean, I, if if we weren't recording today, there's a good chance I wouldn't even know that this thing happened. But it's still pretty fun. It's still pretty funny because it sets up um, potentially one of my predictions for 2024. I would have liked it more if uh, he put MAGA into Longview. You know, like maybe instead of <laughs> saying instead of saying masturbation, yeah. he could say MAGA. Like MAGA that would have been a better or something like that. Come on, Billy Joe, we're we're coming up with fucking gold here. When Mega Nations lost its fun, <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment here, and uh, this is pertinent related to something you just talked about, Memory Hold, uh, with Green Day, their last couple albums being Memory Hold, because we got a lot of letters about the Memory Hold segment of the Indie Casties. There was some controversy there, and I just pulled one of the letters. This came from Matt in Melbourne. And I'll read this one. He, he writes, Hey gang, listen to the Foo Fighters win the Indie Cassies Award for Most Memory Hold Album of 2023. And remember that Blur also released an album in 2023. I love Blur, but I didn't listen to it. Did anyone else? Did either of you? Was it even Memory Hold or just Hold entirely? <laughs> just Hold. Yeah. I like that. Um, so yeah, Matt, he brought up the Blur album. I heard people bring that up. Like, why don't you talk about that? I also, uh, there were people bringing up the Smashing Pumpkins album. I, I, I heard that many times. The How many songs did that have? Like 44? I, I want to say like 33. It, it was definitely 33. anywhere between 30 and 50. Right, and that's the album that they released like track by track via a podcast episode <laughs> too. It was very convoluted. So uh, Matt is wondering about the Blur album, why we didn't talk about that. The Smashing Pumpkins album also came up. Did you hear any complaints from people bringing up memory hold albums that we didn't talk about in the indie casties? I mean, I think they brought up the Smashing Pumpkins album. Uh, just more people probably uh, did that than uh, did that in your mailbag than mine. But you know, in regards to the Blur album, uh, I think in the and this is true worldwide, not just in the United States, but Blur is kind of seen as a guerrilla side project at this point. 
Um, relative to its expectations, I think the Gorillaz album was more memory hold. But what I really appreciate, I did listen to the Blur album, and you know, I saw some conversation about it. People saying, you know, it was their best album since Thirteen. But what I appreciate is that no one tried to say it's as good as Thirteen in that like same way that people might have said, oh, it's their best since Automatic for the People or their best since Octung Baby. I'm partial to Think Tank, which is a great bad album. Uh, I think you've written about that before. I like The Narcissist. That's a good song. I saw it pop up on a few of like, you know, the year end list like Mojo or like the print only ones. I don't know if you can come up with a better outcome for a 2023 Blur album than that. But, you know, with Smashing Pumpkins, I don't think that's memory hold because you have to have expectations that it won't get memory hold. And I have no idea who's like legitimately checking for a Smashing Pumpkins album, whether it's 12 songs or 33. I know people who take new Weezer album releases more seriously. Uh, you know, it's like you might say, like, oh, how can a, how can a Smashing Pumpkins album disappear into thin air. Did you know there was like a new Guns N' Roses song released last month? Yeah. Well, there was, there's been a couple, I guess, released. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. You don't know anything your... about them, you know? Right, exactly. No, I agree with that. And I agree, too, about the point about Blur being a Gorillaz side project at this point. And we, we talked about the Gorillaz album itself being memory hold because it just felt like that just came and went and... I don't know. I, I mean, all these bands are still big touring acts. You know, I mean, we're talking about bands that have reached the point in their career, like where a new album doesn't really matter in terms of like their overall career. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm still good with our pick <laughs> yeah. uh, with, with the Foo Fighters record, because th- that was a record that did have a moment. And we both wrote about that record mm-hmm. and it got really good reviews. And then you looked at year endless and it was, Nowhere to be found. Not even Rolling Stone put it on their list. Uh, so yeah, I think I, I think we got it right. But again, we appreciate people being passionate about the indie cast. These people having debates out there, uh, you know, taking to the streets, you know, maybe uh, throwing a garbage can through a window because they didn't like that Blur was not mentioned. Yeah. In the Memory Hole album segment, they listened to the woke Green Day and decided to stick it to the man or whatever by throwing a <laughs> throwing a throwing a trash can through a Best Buy. And finding out there are no more CDs there anymore. All right, let's get to the predictions for 2024 segment of this episode. Uh, Ian and I, we have been uh, looking into our crystal balls, our respective charts, mapping out the year ahead, figuring out what is going to pop, what is not going to pop. Uh, I made four predictions. Did you also make four predictions? I've got four predictions. Okay, and we have not shown each other our predictions, although if we are truly clairvoyant, we should be able to guess who the other person, <laughs> what the other person predicted. But uh, let's get into it here. I, do, before we get started, do you feel good about your predictions? Do you feel like you're shooting in the dark, or do you feel like these are like good, educated guesses for what's going to happen in the indie world uh, for the next 12 months? I feel like the first two have some basis in reality and they kind of devolve into pure speculation from there. Uh, I do want to point out though, that we, when we do this, we can no deaths, no cancellations. Like uh, we, we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to wish that upon the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, we didn't make that distinction as we were making our predictions. You, you added that to the outline this morning, but I'm, I'm glad you did it. I didn't predict anyone dying. Or anyone getting canceled. Uh, but yeah, that's a good 
provision to have just in general. Uh, we want to keep this positive or at least not <laughs> death related. Uh, so why don't you go first? What is your first prediction for 2024? All right, so I want to give a shout out to Grant Sharples, uh, you know our Uproxx colleague. They 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 made a really good uh, 2024 predictions post where one of the things they brought up was like Lizzo making a comeback with the song called Flaws or something like that, which was so <laughs> which is so realistic that I thought that actually happened. But I'm gonna kind of go in a similar route um, where I predict 2024 will see the Earnest Arcade Fire comeback. Um, mm. so I think it's already happening because I saw them, uh, they were on the something in the water festival and I think they're playing a pretty big, um, role in shaky knees, uh, in Atlanta. We got the 20th year anniversary of funeral coming up. And so I'm not, I'm kind of jumping the gun on an album because they've never taken two years, just two years to make a record. Uh, if we, hard as it is to believe they really put out an album in 2022, like that happened for real. Um, and so I, I'm thinking that like, I don't predict an album coming back, but what I do predict is a single, like maybe just kind of raw. And I, I mean, the funny thing is that they were to make an earnest comeback record. It would sound exactly like we, but what I predict for this is like a New Yorker or like a Vulture article um, interview with like Wynn Butler where he like really lays it all out. Um, and so people maybe get to see them as more of a flawed human than like a, a giant, a, an enormous <laughs> hypocrite. Um, but yeah, I think the timing, it, like we're seeing it kind of soft launched already. I don't know if people really are desiring that but i'm thinking it's going to happen regardless see i think i think this is a good prediction i i don't think it's gonna require a new album or single i actually think that the the wiser route is to do an anniversary tour for funeral don't do any interviews but strategically place videos of the live performances remind people oh this is a good live band maybe put them on tiktok we'll bring we're just gonna give TikTok credit for everything, you know, this is the <laughs> aging music critic uh, move du jour, but uh, I think really lean on nostalgia and really lean on, like, their history and hope that there's a younger audience that doesn't know about the <laughs> recent developments and just loves Funeral, and they're like, oh, this is... Have you heard this record? Like, this is an amazing band. They're called Arcade Fire. You know, we, we're discovering them for the first time. Like, I could see that happening. I could also sure. see a possibility of, like, somehow a salt, like a deep cut from everything now getting big on TikTok. Just, like, completely upending the Arcade Fire uh, narrative in the same way that, like, Harness Your Hopes became the definitive pavement song. That's probably more realistic for, like, a for an Arcade Fire comeback than what I have planned, but I'm still kind of stuck in my old ways. All right, well, for my first prediction, I'm going to say Sky Ferreira, Masochism, will not come out this year. I'm gonna say <laughs> wow, going to say it's going to be another year. Well, do you, I mean, look. Okay, I always think about, like, the Pitchfork profile of Sky Ferreira that was going to launch Masochism. Is that like five years ago now? Are we reaching like the five year? I'm going to Google this quickly to see when that came out. I mean, obviously, that's no fault of Pitchforks that this uh, album has been delayed. 
But uh, I just think about that interview. Sky Ferreira returns, yeah, uh, March 26, 2019. Huh. So we're, we're going to be able to do a, a, like a fifth anniversary think piece about this think piece this year. Yeah. Uh, the Sky Ferreira uh, return. So yeah, I don't know. I, I'm going to say that album is not coming out this year. And that makes me sad. I, I do want to hear this record. I love her last record. Uh, uh, Nighttime My Time uh, from 2013 great album uh, it seems like she's still dealing with maybe some record label stuff I don't know like that's what she has intimated in the past uh, but uh, yeah I'm going to say it's not coming out this year what do you think well you just also reminded me in, in, in like longest lag time between Pitchfork like major Pitchfork profile and like a album that didn't happen it's still been a it, I think we're heading on 10 years since I did that Johnny Jewel interview and we still haven't seen the chromatics come back with dear Tommy. Uh, like, God, I put so much fucking work into that piece. It was actually really awesome, but yeah. Come I, on, he, Johnny Jewel. Ian busted his ass for this profile. Put out <laughs> your goddamn record. Yeah. Stop, stop sitting on that. Uh, actually, I was about to say stop sitting on that drive money, but they did not do drive. Um, but yeah, I think with Sky Ferreira, like what from from what I've heard of the live shows, they've just been like a mess, but like memorable messes. And I I don't know. I think that I I don't think this record is gonna come out. I think it did, didn't it get like kind of leaked last year or some something like that. I remember hearing people saying that they like heard some version of it. Um, hmm. Yeah. So I I I don't. So you don't think it, you, you don't think it's ever gonna come out, or just not this year. I don't think it's ever going to come out. Oh, I think it'll come out eventually. We shall uh, see. I mean, you know, like Dr. Dre eventually. Well, did he drop Detox? <laughs> no, he didn't he put did out Compton. Detox. He, he put out he Compton. Compton. Yeah. So I think we're going to get, I think if we do get a Sky Ferreira thing, it's going to be like her version of Compton. Her Compton. Okay, well, we'll <laughs> see. But, but for now, I'm going to say it's not coming out this year. That's my first prediction. My Compton would be a very good Sky Ferreira uh, song title. That would be good. All right, next prediction. What What do you got? All right, so you know, thanks to SZA, we can you know le- legitimately say we can predict uh, an album of the year by January fourth, which is when we're recording today. So, uh, unlike last year, though, I don't think the album of the year for twenty twenty four has already been released, but I do have a vision of what that will be so for the past couple of years we've basically said that you know it's rihanna's to lose if like rihanna shows up and drops literally anything that would be the album of the year to beat that they could still put something out i don't think they will but i'm gonna pick a i'm gonna go a slightly different route in that the uh 2024 album of the year race it is joanna newsom's to lose and not Mm. not only that but if they do put something out, I'm not going to predict a 10 from Pitchfork, but I'm going to predict a 9.5 or higher. It's been a few years since they've really like busted out the fine china for that. But I think Joanna Newsom uh, is in a space right now, a very enviable space where it's someone who's like seriously beloved by critics of all ages. But they're not not so much taken for granted, but just sort of not really thought about because it's been nine years, I think, since Joanna Newsom's last album. So right. I, I think that Divers, like, Divers yes. was 2015. I, I interviewed her for that record and uh, that's a great record and she was delightful to speak with. But yeah, she's been 
off the radar now for almost a decade. Yeah, and I feel like there's some stuff bubbling up. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I think there's just like some energy in the air where people are like ready to go all in on uh, you know Joanna Newsom, um, which hell, uh, I, I'm interested in seeing that. Uh, but yeah, I think that. Uh, I'm predicting that that's if if a Joanna Newsom album drops, like I don't care like how good it is or how not good. I mean, look, the track record speaks for itself. But yeah, we're gonna see like uh, if not a Fiona Apple type situation, something damn near close to it. So I'm gonna because I have an album of the year prediction as well, and I so I'm gonna bump. I was gonna talk about that a little bit later, but I'll make that my second prediction. I like the Joanna Newsom prediction, but I'm going to say that if I had to guess right now what will be the critical consensus album of the year, I'm going to go with the new Heim record, uh, which hasn't been announced, but <laughs> it's been reported that they're working on and there seems to be an expectation that they're going to put out a record this year. And I just feel like they're in a position now, this would be their fourth studio record, I believe. Yes. It would be their fourth. And it just seems like they're in that it's it's weird to talk about Heim like this, but they are like in the elder stateswoman role now. I mean, they've been around now for over a decade, and you can see that there's this generation of artists that they have clearly influenced. Um, it just feels like it's the fourth record. It feels like the potential summation record. It feels like the record where people are gonna just be like. Heim, you helped define this generation of indie music. Now you put out this presumably great record. So we want to give you all the flowers. It just seems lined up for Heim if they put out a good record this year that people are going to go crazy for it. And not just reward the record, but in essence give them like a career achievement award for that album. It just feels like it's their time. So I'm going to say Heim would be, if I'm betting, I'm putting my money on them having the consensus critical favorite album of the year. That's an interesting call. And I think that, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna save this one. I'm gonna save that one, this prediction for last, but it is somewhat related to Heim. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna hold off on that, but my, actually my next prediction plays off yours quite nicely. Um, so you mentioned Haim as being a generational sort of act that gets gets another like another bump in 2024. I think that um, Vampire Weekend is another band. Like apparently their record's done, um, so they're coming back with a new record, and it got me thinking about a lot of bands that haven't put out any new music since 2019, 2024. Um, I know that the XX is working on a new album. Um, it's been for some odd years since the last Heyman Paula album. Uh, Slow Rush came out before COVID. And I do think that all of the aforementioned are going to put out a new record. But in the same way that I predict that Joanna Newsom is, we're going to get like a, you know, like a 9.5-ish sort of album. I'm predicting in 2024, we get a major flop album from somebody. I don't know from who, but um, I'm wondering if it's going to be, it's not going to be Vampire Weekend. Too many people like them. I don't, I think XX is too influential uh, for people to really go against them. Um, I think that Tame Impala runs the risk of that. Or, and I don't want this to happen, but like 
what would happen if a turnstile album <laughs> like turned out to be like a, like a flop. I don't think that I, I don't know who it's going to be, but we're going to see like a major, um, I guess, decade defining flop from some major indie act. Like I'm thinking of like a centipede hurts type affair. Yeah, I think Tame Impala is a good call there. And the slow rush, in a way, is a soft version of that. I think that record gets a pass because it came out right before the pandemic. So, you know, that certainly, I think, affected how that record was probably received. But I feel like in the moment, people felt like, oh, this is a bit of a letdown after Currents. But then it kind of got the rep of, like, well, it's a slow burn type record. (laughs) You know, you're going to like it over time. And I think that is true. But yeah, they seem like, I don't know, because Kevin Parker, he has become a, a bit overexposed at this point, you know, working with other artists and just how influential his band has been. I could see people maybe having the knives out if he doesn't hit it out of the park with his next record. Um, we're really feeding off each other's predictions here because... You brought up Vampire Weekend. I have a Vampire Weekend prediction as well. My my prediction was I think they passed the five albums test this year. I think their record will be their fifth. I expect it to be really good. Ezra Koenig is way too deliberative of an artist and you know just taking care of everything to make a flop to me. I just feel like he's got unshakable taste. He knows what he's doing. And he's going to make a record that at least is very good and probably great. So I, I I expect that record to be really good. But since that's kind of similar to yours, I'm going to re- resuscitate a prediction I had on my list and then I crossed off. I'll put it back in since you already talked about Vampire Weekend. I predict that Jack Antonoff will post an Instagram about Always and wanting to work with Always. Ooh, that's a good and, one. And Molly Rankin... Won't reject it outright. She'll leave open the possibility. So I'm not saying the next Always album is going to have some jackass. Like, I could see a situation like where Always is like, let's do what Mitski did on, uh, uh, what's that Moral record? Hell. That she, <laughs> yeah, where, where she had like one single like with Dan Wilson as the co-writer. Like, let's dabble our toes in maybe making a pop song. So you have like one pop single on the next always record and it's co-written with Jack Antonoff. I think that maybe the ball goes in motion for that this year. I could see that happen. I could see always being the next indie act to be Antonoffinized, <laughs> if that's a word. Antonoff. Yeah, that's a very, that one's like so realistic. It's like almost not fun. <laughs> you know, like we're, <laughs> Like we're we like to get into like speculation, but like no, I, again, this is sort of like the Lizzo song called "Flaws," in that it's so plausible. Like I'm like kind of shocked it didn't already actually happen. Right. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I I feel like that's very plausible. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. I I mean I don't want that to happen, but it could very easily happen. I think. Yeah. I thought I thought that one's great. So. For my last prediction, uh, and I'm I'm, I'm going to kind of pivot a bit as well because like my, the the prediction I had with regards to Heim is that they're going to get like a Taylor Swift type bump that I don't think Women in uh, Music Part Three got. Um, I had a prediction in 2024 that uh, it's that it's going to be a quiet Taylor Swift year. 
that's like kind of a general thing, but I don't really have enough to like describe what that actually means. Um, I mean, anything is going to be quiet relative to 2023, but I think that they're going to take a real step back. Um, but as far, like, as far as like my last prediction goes, like, I feel like I, I want it to be either like a Taylor Swift thing or a TikTok thing, because like that was pretty much all anyone really talked about in 2023. Like it felt like our line of work was very reactive, uh, to trends, but I was trying to, and boy, I'm like the wrong person to try to think about like what tick, like what might pop on TikTok. Um, you know, this year we saw a lot of shoegaze, a lot of slow core, um, which would be the last things I would expect to happen on TikTok. Um, and I tried to like speed run through ideas of like what 90s subgenres might have a comeback. You know, we've already done power pop. We've already done alt country. We've done shoegaze. We've done slow core. And I fast forwarded about 15 years uh, thinking about Noah Kahan, if that's how you pronounce his name. I don't know how to quantify this, but I do think we are going to see someone try to make a case for stomp, clap, ho, hey music mm. in 2024. I'm not saying that like the Lumineers or like of Monsters and Men or what have you are going to be seen as like a cool new influence, but I do think that is a very undervalued uh, node of music it, just in terms of discourse like I, I don't think that's the secret to like what's going to be popping in 2024 uh, but I do think one way or the other that style of music is going to be a part of the conversation that has to be taken seriously yeah I like that prediction yeah I mean because there is a generation of uh, people who are maybe say 22 right now or 23 where seeing Mumford and Sons on the Grammys was probably a big deal, like when they were <laughs> in middle school. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if we're going to see uh, Claro cover uh, the Lumineers or, you know, we'll have like some tiny desk concert where Boy Genius drops a Mumford and Sons cover. Uh, I, I, It does not seem implausible to me. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I could definitely see that happen. I thought you were going to say that you were going to predict a trip-hop revival. I think that's happened so many times already, though. Yeah, it, it, it just seems like maybe like a fixed reference point that people go back to. But uh, I did consider I did consider that one until I realized, like, that's that's sort of like shoegaze and that there's there might be, like, a bump where, like, people, like, we start talking about, like, Massive Attack, like, more than usual. But I feel like trip-hop is always kind of there. If we're being real, that's like a con like constant true north for music critics, right? Yeah, I mean, just going back to the ho hey thing. I mean, you listen to someone like Zach Bryan, and it's like, okay, this guy clearly loves the head and the heart. Like, I wouldn't be shocked if he has all of their albums. And so, yeah, there's definitely a strain of artists that that could definitely be a thing for. Um, for my last prediction, I'm going to go with a very, very obvious prediction. And, and in a way, maybe it's not fair that I predict this because I have a hand <laughs> in deciding whether this is true or not. But I'm just going to throw this out there. I fully expect that my personal album of the year will be the next MJ Lenderman record. And I that hasn't been announced either, but he's been open about, you know, he's working on this record. It seems like he's almost done. I would expect it to be dropping sometime in 2024. 
And I'm curious as to whether he will at some point overshadow Wednesday. Yeah, that was going to be one of my predictions. I'm wondering like what their I mean, I think that they both have their lanes and Wednesday is always going to be like a well-respected band, but MJ Lenderman in a way is uh I think more commercial in some respects. I think there's a lane for someone like him uh to really stand out and I I wonder how his career is going to evolve this year in relation to Wednesday. And I, I could see him on his own being at least as big and maybe a bit bigger as a solo act. Yeah, that I mean, that one seemed like that once again seems so plausible and so likely to happen. I didn't actually think to put it in because also I figured that MJ was going to be in your territory, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, you know, MJ Lenderman, he signed to anti, um, yeah, the record's going to come out. It's, I think there's going to be a different sort of fan hood around MJ Lenderman. Like I, one of the funnier things I remember discussing with Wednesday when I interviewed them back, uh, early last year was, um, Carly from Wednesday talking about like how all the, at the end of a Wednesday show, there'll just be like a bunch of dudes circling around MJ Lenderman talking about how awesome he is. And I think what you might see is, I don't know, like Wednesday's fan base, like multiplied by a Japan droids type fan base. Uh, by the way, like I thought it, it never dawned on me to protect the new Japan droids album in 2024. I don't think that's happening, but um, yeah, I, I, it'll be very interesting to see, uh what happens with that but yeah i don't doubt for a fucking second that's going to be your number one album of the year and that would be like me saying that like yeah i predict ian's number one album of the year is going to be glass beach you know it's like i do have a role in that and i know that album fucking rules but like (laughs) that's that's chalk right there yeah well i had to go with one obvious one yeah so (laughs) i'll do the one that i have control over um that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We're going to skip Recommendation Corner this week. We'll be back with it next week. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.